And if you want to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 today. Oops, let me get there. So the topic of today's message is an exciting one. It's your role in personal conflicts. So you can hold your applause. We've been doing a series called Under the Sun. It's a series in Ecclesiastes. And it's looked at all the different ways that can go wrong when we seek to live our lives apart from God and we seek our happiness and our significance and our security on our own. And so life under the sun is full of vanity, and there's a lostness associated with that. And there's also dire consequences that can go along with living life under the sun. And when we live for ourselves, there's another aspect of brokenness and fallenness that gets revealed very often. When we live for ourselves and apart from God, we also hurt other people. We fight and we quarrel with other people. And so today, instead of continuing on in the Ecclesiastes series, we're just taking a, a one-week detour to actually look at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, because it helps us to see that our godless ways of thinking when we live apart from God are really at the root of our personal conflicts with other people. And so Sammy James is going to come and read the scripture text for us. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that scripture says, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. Lord, we sit under the authority of your word to us because in your word you speak truth. And we live in a world that's not filled with truth. And so we need to be reminded of what you say is right and wrong. We need to hear what you have to say about how our hearts work. And we need to hear from you about how you graciously help us when we're caught in our sins so that we can live our lives for the praise of your glory. So, Lord, let these texts today resonate in our hearts. And may we learn from them so that we can be pleasing to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So conflicts pop up everywhere, right? It's not like I'm talking to a bunch of people and they're like, I don't know about this message. I don't have any conflicts. I mean, I do show of hands if you have no conflicts in your life. And if you raise your hand, you'll be in counseling later on today. <laughs> no, seriously, conflicts show up everywhere. You can have conflict with your spouse, with your roommates, parents, 
with your children, with your boss, with your coworker, with your teachers, with your classmates, friends, neighbors. I could go on and on. In every sphere of life, there's the potential, basically, for fights and quarrels because we butt heads with people and we disagree. And when we disagree, we're not always nice to each other. And, and relationships get broken and destroyed as a result. And so sometimes the things that, uh, that we engage in that classifies fights and quarrels, sometimes it's little stuff when we just get annoyed at people. Sometimes it's catastrophic, stuff that can lead to an, the ending of a marriage, right? And so there's a whole range of from small things to little things, but they're all significant in God's sight. And so we need to find out what's at the root of these things. What causes fights and what causes quarrels among us? Where does it come from? And what we see in Scripture is that there's one primary source, and that is the source of our conflicts, the source of our quarrels starts in our own hearts in terms of our participation in the fight or in the quarrel. I want to tell you a little story. I was driving home from Baltimore uh, last week, and we have to go up to Baltimore pretty regularly to take our daughter for doctor appointments or different exams. And so there's a certain virtuous sense of myself that I have in driving up there all the time because I have to take off work and, and I do it joyfully and we drive up there and we wait forever in the waiting room. We have these long meetings and it takes a lot of time. And, you know, I do pretty good generally in those times and, and I joyfully do it and I, and I love spending time with my wife and daughter because the three of us go up there together. But on this particular trip home, we were coming back and about 10 minutes coming back from Baltimore, my daughter said, I lost my earbuds. I can't find them. I said, oh, okay, well, just look around the car and find them. And we're going down 95, right? And so it's in the middle of the afternoon, and, and in my mind, I know that if we don't get on to 495 by a certain amount of time, we'll be home at about midnight, right? Because 495 is a train wreck. And so I have in my heart the sense of, hey, you know, we need to move this along here, find the earbuds. Well, after a little bit of, you know, mixing around and all that, well, I can't find them. I said, well, okay, well, uh, and we're driving, okay, so we're going farther and farther from the doctor's office, right, and we're getting down 95, and so my cadence in my speech starts to ramp up a little bit, hey, well, let's, let's call the doctor, Let, let's call and see if they're at the thing, because we're going in the other direction, right, and we don't want to have to go back, and so then I said, well, can you call them, and so all of a sudden there's some fumbling, and well, we can't find the number, and I'm like, well, I gave you the piece of paper that had the number on it, well, we can't find that piece of paper, and I'm like, oh, that's, 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 that's just great. And we're going down the road, and eventually she gets the number, and then, of course, she calls the doctor's office. And what happens when you call the doctor's office? No, you get put on hold. You're on hold forever, and then you hear really bad music. So I'm hearing the music in the background. I go, this is not going the way that I want, right? Because we're going to be on this phone forever. So I have a decision to make. Do I just turn around and go back? Or do we stop and look for the, the earbuds? So in my mind, I do a little mental gymnastics. I go, oh, well, let's just pull over. So I pull over uh, at the next exit, and then I pull over off the side of the road. And I get out of the car, and I open the back of the car, and, and I help my daughter. We lift the seats up, and they had fallen down there, and we found the earbuds. And we got in the car. And you're like, well, why is he telling this story about conflict? Well, I'm telling you in a very sanitized way about how we actually... <laughs> how we actually got off 95, onto the off-ramp, how fast the car came to a halt, and the, and the active motions that went along with me actually opening my door, opening her door, lifting up the seat, getting the earbuds and saying, okay, here are your earbuds, let's go, let's get back in the car. 
Well, in that moment, and I don't know about you, but this is how it works in my life. I know there's a little disruption in the force, right? I know stuff's not quite working the way it should, but I love myself, and I don't like to be picked out for my faults, or I don't like to be shown up when my sin is exposed. So in those moments, I sort of hold my breath, and I hope that nobody noticed. Okay, that doesn't work, right? So for the first, like, 20 seconds, we're driving in the car, because uh, they do a U-turn, we get back on the thing, and all of a sudden, my dear, lovely wife says, well, that wasn't very nice. <laughs> oh, Oh, you can just feel it now. You're like, all right, steady the ship here. This might not go well, right? And so you're sitting there going, all right, well, and, and so then you start thinking, okay, now what do I do? And, and you run through all kinds of stuff in your head in that moment, right? Like 500,000 thoughts go through, like how do I handle this situation? And so you start to think, well, yeah, I could have been a little less rude. I could have been a little kinder. I probably didn't have to hit the brakes that fast and all that. And so... Um, you know, there's sort of this lame acknowledgement of, yeah, I could have done better on that one. And then you think, okay, well, so that's the end of the story. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Not the end of the story. We go on about another few minutes, and all of a sudden, my sweet wife says, do you think you might need to say you're sorry or apologize for what happened here? I mean, the problem just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? I mean, we just defend ourselves. We minimize how much our contribution to a conflict is. And at the end of the day, it's almost like we have to come sort of being dragged to repentance, right? That's kind of the war that James is talking about in our passage today. What causes fights? What causes quarrels among you? Isn't it the stuff that's going on on the inside? You see, in that moment, my daughter and my wife did not cause me to sin. I sinned because there was stuff that I wanted. I wanted to get, I, first of all, I wanted to get home. I really, really have an aversion to traffic. That's why I live next to the church. I don't do commutes even. I don't do anything. Like, I just don't do that. I don't enjoy that. I don't like sitting in the, in the car. It was stinking hot outside. And I was like, I, I really don't want to be in traffic. And then put the kicker on, I actually had some things that I needed to do that afternoon that were important to me. And because they were important to me, I wanted all of this to be important to all of them. Because when people don't give me what I want, I'm not going to respond very well to you because I love myself. And I want things to go my way. And I can tell by the nodding going on in the audience that maybe you're a little bit like me. Well, the reality is James writes this letter, and it was a circular letter because we're all this way. And we all need to hear these words because each and every one of us needs to understand what is our contribution to the conflicts that we find ourselves in. Now, I'm not minimizing that sometimes you're in a conflict because somebody's coming after you. That's for a separate message. But I'm talking about the situations like that I just described where you're actually contributing to this. You're the one that's getting upset. You're the one that's getting offended. And you're the one that's provoking the fight or the quarrel because of something that you want. And so in James 4, 1 through 10, uh, the main point of the message, and I'm just going to break it up into three sections, is when sinful desires take control, God gives more grace so we will turn to him and repent. And so we're just going to have three uh, points here this morning. And the first one is when sinful desires take control. And we see that in verses 1 through 5. James asks this rhetorical question. 
what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And he's not asking because he doesn't know the answer, right? It's a rhetorical question. He's getting them to stop and think for a minute. Do you know how your own heart works? Do you know why you do the things you do? That's really important for us because if I don't know why I do what I do, well, then I just might recklessly continue on living my life in ways that are not pleasing to the Lord. But if we're serious about our faith, if we're serious about being conformed to the image of Christ, well, when deficiencies and faults show up in our lives, well, then we should want to know, first of all, what it is, and then why did it happen? So we can put these things to death, and we can live the way that God wants us to live. And so his answer is this, and listen to the words again. Is it not this, that your passions are at war. Just think about the metaphors being your, your passions. He's equating it to war. Your passions are at war within you. You desire, okay, something else that you want and you do not have. So you do what? You murder. Okay, he's going to the deep end. He's talking about war. He's talking about murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So he's using words like war and murder and fights. Friends, this is all about control. We all want to be in control of our own lives. And that's how we lived before we came to Christ. And so when we have situations in our lives that erupt into fights and quarrels, these are wonderful little vignettes for us to learn from God. Because God is exposing something in us. As I was driving down 95, God was exposing things in my heart that I needed to learn. Now, I can quickly brush that off and say, well, I don't usually act that way. I can minimize it. I can say, well, it's not as bad as when I was a kid. When my dad got mad at us in the car, he'd put you out of the car and then drive off. I'm not kidding. That happened to me twice. Once down on Canal Road and once on Route 50 going out to the beach. And literally, the station wagon peels out, and I'm standing there like eight years old. And so I'm going, hey all right, I pressed the, you know, the brake a little bit and all that. See, when I compare myself to other people, I'm not getting what God wants. You see, the standard isn't me against you. The standard that I'm to keep is God. Be holy for I'm holy. And so we lapse into some of this wrong thinking. We, we minimize, we choose the wrong things to measure our sin by, but God is after something so much more because he wants you to be like his son, Jesus Christ. And so this is really, really important. And what he's teaching is that whatever rules your heart is going to control how you respond to others. And like I say, we tend to look outside for the source of our problems. You made me do this. If you just hadn't done this, I wouldn't have gotten so upset. Wrong answer. That's not how this works. No, when you get angry and when you get upset, when I get angry and when I get upset, it's because of something that's already resident in my heart, something that's already brewing in there. You just happen to shine a light on it through your contribution and your participation in that episode. And that's what God wants us to see. Don't look outside. Look inside. You see, for each of us, even though, and in this baptism we just saw this, this wonderful picture of being uh, put down in the water, having our sins washed away, and rising to new life in Christ. But here's the problem. Until we get to heaven, there's still the effect of remaining sin in our lives. 
Nobody's perfect. When you come out of the baptismal pool, it's not like, okay, I'm perfect and I'll be perfect the rest of my life. No, the rest of our life is to work out our salvation, right? And to become who we actually are in Christ. That's called sanctification. And so we need to understand this. Paul Tripp says this wonderful quote. He says, the cause of my struggle is not the people or the situations in my life, but the heart that I bring to those relationships. And so it's a serious problem. He calls these people double-minded. In verse 4, he says, you adulterous people. Again, look at the metaphor that he's using. You go, why is he talking about adultery? He's talking about a fight with somebody. What's he talking about adultery? Well, he's talking about spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery for the people of God is that God has made a covenant with his people, and the people have covenanted with God. It's like in a marriage, right? And when you break that covenant, you're... You're committing adultery, in effect, a spiritual adultery. And that's what he's saying. That's how serious the problem is. So this is not something that we take lightly, whether it's some big, massive fight and quarrel that you're in, or even something as seemingly small as what I did on Route 95. You see, in God's sight, there was a war going on in my heart. I'm murdering the people in my car. And in God's sight, it's all displeasing. And so he says it's spiritual adultery. We're no longer loving God, but we've turned to the world. This is where we make the connection with the Ecclesiastes series. It's life under the sun again, isn't it? Right? We're not living in the good of who we are in Christ, but we're living according to the world, according to its standards, and we're being driven and controlled by the desires of our own hearts. And so James reinforces the thought. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself, okay, this is a choice, makes himself an enemy of God. Scripture often uses the word, especially in the Old Testament, the term idolatry. Now, we don't build little stone idols or carve them out of wood. No, but those idols reside in our hearts, things that we bow down and worship. The New City Catechism that Justin referenced a couple weeks ago says, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hopes and happiness, significance and security. You see, I wanted something in getting home, and I was willing to bow down and worship it so that I could get what I want. And if we're ruled by a wrong desire, there's two ways that I'm going to respond to you. If you're helping me get what I want, it will all go well. If you are not helping me get what I want, I'll get angry, frustrated, annoyed, and I will not be happy with you. And this is the essence of where these conflicts start to come in. This is the part that we play in it. Now, again, sometimes people will have a conflict with you because of what they're doing to you. But I'm, I'm localizing this to the ones where we're actively participating in. And so how does this happen? Well, there's a slide that's going to go up uh, uh, here, and I learned this from, from Paul Tripp. Uh, it's how desires take control. And at the very top, it says desire. And, and I want to make a comment about that. My desire to go home and to get my work done was not a bad desire. And that's where some of the deception comes in. It doesn't always start. It wasn't like my desire is to be really mean to my family today. See, that would have been just a wrong desire from the get-go. But my desire wasn't actually wrong. And, and this happens all the time. If you ask a married couple, um, if they have disagreements over money or over sex, it's not that one person necessarily wants something terrible. Actually, they might want something good. 
But has that good thing taken over control of their heart to where they won't actually be reasonable or talk things out or get help? And so it starts with a desire, a desire for something that we want. And there's nothing typically wrong with that. But then our desires turn into a demand. And so the desire is no longer an expression of love for God and for man and for others, but it's something that's selfish. It's something that I crave and desire for myself. I want to get home, and I don't like to travel. But then it turns into a need. Something desirable is now seen as essential. I'm convinced I cannot live without it. And the desire takes control of my heart and becomes a master. And so in that moment, as time kept clicking on, and I kept seeing a non-preferred future coming down the road and being stuck in traffic and not getting home, my desire turned into a demand, turned into a need. Okay, so that's all the stuff that's going on internally. But then externally, what happens? Well, I start to develop expectations. If I really believe that this is essential for me to get home, well, then it seems right for me to expect you, if you love me, to give me what I want. Help me get home quickly. And if you don't, then I get disappointed in you. If you don't give me what I want, this is when anger and conflict break out. It becomes personal. And this gets to the core of our conflicts with other people. And then finally, we punish people. Sometimes people think that getting angry at others is throwing plates and screaming and yelling and slamming doors and all that. That's one end of the anger spectrum. But there are a lot of other people that get very angry and say very little. They'll just not talk to you for extended periods of time. They'll give you the cold shoulder. They'll ignore you or they'll talk behind your back. I mean, anger shows up in a lot of different ways um, when we get into conflicts with different people. And we need to be aware of how that works because all of it is a form of punishment. You didn't give me what I want, and now you're going to pay for it. There's no grace in that. There's no kindness. David Pallison said that cravings underlie conflicts. It's a great quote. Cravings underlying conflict. Next time you're in a conflict with somebody, ask yourself, what do I really want right now? And you might have to ask yourself that question a couple times. The first answer might be for them to stop doing something. Okay, that's a start. But you have to ask yourself the next question, but why does that matter to me? Why am I losing my joy even if they don't give me what I want? Because our joy in Christ is not dependent on other people's performance. Our joy in Christ is a spiritual joy. It's a joy that comes with God residing in us through the work of his spirit. And so on this car ride home from Baltimore, as I sought to think about what had just happened, I realized that in that moment, my sinful desire for what I wanted overruled my love for my family. And that's when the godly sorrow started to come in. I started to realize, I don't want to be that guy. That's not why God saved me. And I want to honor God. I want God's forgiveness. And I also want my family's forgiveness. And so I was able to repent, and God helped me. But where do you go? Where do I go typically when we're caught in our sin? Well, in verse 6, it says, first of all, God gives more grace. And so the first part of this message is kind of the bad news because everybody's sitting there going, oh, man, I do that, and I do that, and I do that, right? Everybody's sitting there going, I mean, everybody gets out of here with something today, right? But we can leave hopeless at that point. But God never leaves us hopeless. James, in his letter, does not leave them hopeless. He calls them spiritual adulterers, right? 
double-minded, but it reminds them of the greatest truth that we need to know. God gives more grace. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. This is great news because we need God's grace not only for salvation, but also for growth in our life in Christ. So his grace is foundational in salvation, and he's already given us that. And that's where the gospel comes in, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We were God's enemies. And he still gave grace. And he fills us with his spirit so that in our hearts we can respond in repentance and faith to the glorious news of the gospel. And this is all through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. If you're a guest here, this is why we make such a big deal about the cross and about Jesus, because it symbolizes for us who Jesus is and what he did to make a way for us to have our sins forgiven and to be given the hope of eternal life. Because he substituted himself on that cross for our sins, so that even though we were enemies of God, we could be made friends. And now we're being conformed to his image, so we still need more grace. And this grace is essential in sanctification. It's the only ray of hope under the sun, right? It's the sovereign grace of God. And only God's grace can rescue us from our sinful, evil desires. In a really helpful passage on how this works in our lives, about how we actually get grace and how we change in the Christian life, comes from Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And a lot of times people stop there and go, okay, I just have to work harder to be a Christian. Okay, but Paul was very wise. He said, no, you need to understand the last part of the sentence too. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in our sanctification, yes, we work, but that's always in the context of God already being at work in our lives. This is the power that we need for change. And God works powerfully by his spirit. The rest of verse 6 says, Therefore, knowing that God gives more grace, he reminds him, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so what he's calling them to is a humble dependence on God. He said, look, you get yourself into this mess and your evil, unbelieving hearts get exposed, but here's the problem. You're not going to be able to resolve it on your own. You're going to need help for that too. And so when our sin gets exposed, you got to remember God's using this so that he can draw you to himself and deepen the relationship that he has with you by his spirit. He calls us unto himself that way. Now, we don't always like it because, as I said earlier, when my sin gets exposed, I'm just like Adam and Eve in the garden. What'd they do when their sin got exposed? They hid. And that's what we do too. I just, I don't want anybody to see what I just did. I don't want anybody to know what I just did. I just want it to stay in the dark and hope it goes away. But sin never works that way. We can keep trying to sweep it under the rug, but then you just get a big mound in the rug. And then you trip over it, and then it gets exposed, and then it's a lot worse. But no, we get more grace when we are humble, when we recognize our need for God. And so James is quoting uh, Proverbs 3, 34. He's just going back to Scripture saying, hey, you need to humble up and turn to God because God will give grace to the humble, those who acknowledge their dependence on him. 
And so how does God's grace bring change? Well, there's a picture here of a house in the middle of a desert. Hope you can see it. Yeah, there you go. Um, and again, this is from CCEF, some counseling people. But they've really helped me understand. I used to think that change in the Christian life was just, I was always looking for the silver bullet. Just give me the one verse or tell me the one thing, either God's just going to change me or if I just work harder, then it'll all get better. But I've realized over time that's not how it works. And when I came across this picture, I go, yeah, actually this is much more representative of how it really works in our lives. What happens is in the foundation of the house is that God changes you. And so I referenced the Philippians 2 passage. God works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the foundation for change is the Holy Spirit at work in your life. He's a constant companion, a counselor, and the source of our strength. But then God's word up at the, uh, up at the top, the truth changes you. Psalm 19.7 says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Okay? And so God's truth helps us to change. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What a gift we have in God's Word. This is the Word that's going to help us be the people that God wants us to be. And God's people change us as well. Proverbs 13, 20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. And godly growth is often the product of the gifts and graces of the people that God places around us. Paul Tripp has another quote. He says, personal insight is the product of community. Think about that. When I'm driving down 95, absolving myself of any wrongdoing and thinking of myself as a pretty decent guy, I'm driving down the road, but I needed help from outside of myself. I needed the spirit at work in my wife's life to start to ask me some questions or make some observations. She's not saying those things because she doesn't love me. She's actually saying those things because she does love me. She's trying to help me. And so change comes when people are placed by God into your life. And that's why we need to be in community on a regular basis. And we need good role models and examples to follow. Suffering, struggle, and trouble change you. Hebrews 5 says this about Jesus. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Sometimes in the context of the difficult things that we find ourselves in, God's also at work trying to change you to respond the way that Jesus responded. And then finally, you change in the middle of the house. First Thessalonians says this very succinctly in, verses, in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, you turn from God to idols to serve the living and true God. It's a summary of what it looks like for us to walk the walk of faith. And so there's no silver bullet. But the reality is God gives us more grace and he gives it in a variety of ways. And then the conclusion is so that we can turn to him and repent. Verses 7 to 10 say this. And think about how this concludes now. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is a picture of grace-empowered repentance. Two things I want to say about it and what James says about it. James says that repentance begins as we turn to God. 
You see, we're not going to change ourselves. We can get help from others, and we can try to figure things out, but at the end of the day, it's got to come from God, and that's where James starts. So he says, submit to God. Okay, remember that he's your Lord. That's what Adam asked those who were being baptized. Is Jesus your Lord? And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. And are we willing to obey him, not murder? Jesus says, look, when you get angry and call somebody a fool, you're murdering them. There are connections like this throughout Scripture. Second thing he says is resist the devil. And we would be foolish to think that we can get through this life without an active presence of the enemy trying to get us off track. And one of the main tricks of the enemy is he's a deceiver. He's a liar. He tells us things are going much better than they really are. And so we need to be aware of that. And what's the one active uh, weapon that we're given in Ephesians to fight the enemy? It's the word of truth. It's the sword, right? And then he says, draw near to God, and there's a great promise associated with that. He will draw near to you. And God met me on that ride home. Yeah, I was ashamed. I was like, oh, Lord, I'm sorry I did this to you. I'm sorry for what I've done. And then to experience God's forgiveness in that moment and know you're forgiven and my sins are washed whiter than snow, I tell you, it made the rest of the ride home a lot better because I knew I was right with God and I knew there was an opportunity now to get right with my family. But after submitting to God, and that's the foundation, repentance involves two things. It says to wash your hands. This has to do with changing your behavior. And then it says purify your hearts. And this has to do with getting rid of the idols in your heart. You got to find out what really bugs you. And to do that, look for the patterns in your life of when you get the most angry or when you get the most frustrated with other people. Typically, there's just patterns in your life, but it's really good if you can identify those, find out what they are, so that you can get help from God and from others to put those things to death. Part of the application of this message and part of my repentance is confessing my sin to you. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 say this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And the process of confessing our sins, and not everybody has to get up and confess their sins like this, but actually this is, this is healthy for me because I want you to know the type of person that I am and, and how I get tempted at times. And so if you see me doing something that's not honoring to God, you'll know a little bit more about me and you'll come alongside me and try to encourage me or point me back to God. You know, so often in life, we don't need to be told something new. We just need to be reminded of what's true, starting with our identity in Christ and remembering what Christ has done for you and for me so that we can live our lives in radically different ways than the way that the world says to live. So he concludes in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Amen? So whatever situation you find yourself in and whoever you're in a relational conflict in or with and it's your contribution that kind of got the ball rolling, I want to encourage you, there is grace for you. God gives more grace and he doesn't want your relationship to stay stuck. That does not bring him glory and honor. No, he's a redeeming God. So when sinful desires take control, God gives more grace so we will turn to him 
and repent. So we're going to transition now to the Lord's Supper. Uh, so if you don't have the elements, you can go to one of the tables in the back or up along the, the railing there, get the elements. The Lord's Supper is a family meal for believers in Jesus Christ. We do this together as a church community to remember Jesus Christ and to remember what he has done for us. And for our guests, you are welcome to participate if you're a believer. Uh, but if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, we just ask that you would abstain from taking the Lord's Supper. But, but think about what we're doing and, and what you've seen here this morning through the singing and the baptism and the preaching of God's word. And, and our hope and prayer is that if you have questions about Jesus or what it means to be a Christian, that you would come and talk to one of us, for we would be happy to talk with you about this. So before we take the elements, I actually wanted to give us an opportunity for reflection. Every one of us, given enough time in a day or a week, has the possibility of having some relational conflict with other people. Maybe it's something that you've said to somebody recently or an attitude that you're harboring in your heart. Well, the Lord says that before we take the Lord's Supper, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should actually examine ourselves to make sure that we're right with God, Right? And so we can take this in a worthy manner. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 32, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So self-examination is actually a very positive thing. It's a moment for us to stop and do business with God and to make sure that as we then partake of the elements, that we're reminded that the shed blood of Jesus Christ purifies us from all sins. So let's take a moment and draw near to God and ask him to search your heart and my heart for any unresolved conflicts that we're participating in. And let's see what we can do in going back to God and offering that up to him. So let's just take a moment. Spirit, search our hearts. Bring conviction to us. Shine the light of your truth so that we can discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and realize where there is any impure or wrong way in us. And Lord, in revealing those things to us, help us to be humble, to acknowledge those sins before you and to confess them and to receive your wonderful forgiveness, the forgiveness that comes to us through Jesus Christ, your Son. Father, we know that you are good gracious and ready to forgive. And so we cast our cares, we cast our sins upon you, and we ask you to forgive us in Jesus' name. Amen. So now let's take the cups. And let's take the bread. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. And now let's take the cup. Again, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We're going to close our time with singing. The first song we're going to sing is called Man of Sorrows. And the bridge of the song says this. So if you could please stand. It says, now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Amen? Amen. Let's sing. Where your love poured out over 